The year was 2018. It was the Winter Olympics. The snow was crisp and cold, inviting the Olympiads to compete. It was his first time at the Olympics. He was Norway's cross-country skiing star. But only seconds into the men's 30-kilometer cross-country ski-a-thon, Simon Hagesta Kruger's right ski slipped, and it fell off, and he went down. Now, he was down, crumpled in the snow, and there were so many competitors all piled up that they didn't have time to course correct. And two of them, there was two Russian competitors, Andrei Larkov and Denis Spitsov, who were right behind him, and they fell down too. All three of them crumpled down in a heap in the snow. Three Olympic athletes who unexpectedly came crashing down and along with them, their hopes for an Olympic medal. Oh, the watching world breathed a collective sigh of disappointment for the dreams that were dashed on his behalf. Now, Kruger could have stayed down in the snow. He could have easily thrown up his arms in the air and given up. I mean, no one would have blamed him for it. I mean, even if he thought, uh, I'm going to blame it on something else. I'm going to blame it on a bum ski. I'm going to blame it on icy conditions on the course. I'm going to blame it on an injury. He could have gotten away with that. But he made a critical choice in that moment when everything probably felt lost to him. He untangled himself. He got up. He shook himself off. And he started the course again. Now, he had a broken ski pole from the fall, and he was 15 seconds behind everybody else. Now, in an Olympic competition, 15 seconds is an eternity. Now, later in an interview, he said this, I had to try to keep those negative thoughts away. I knew it was going to be extremely hard. But he didn't give up. He didn't give in. He didn't quit. Instead, he patiently, persistently pushed forward. Now, one of the Norwegian coaches, he ran out and he gave a fresh ski pole to Simon, which was legal on this course. So he got his fresh ski pole and his years of training kicked in and he began to go one ski at a time. The weight of his country's pride on his shoulder, his own dreams for an Olympic medal weighty on his mind. And he kept going and he passed one skier and then he passed another skier and then he passed another skier. He passed 63 skiers in his pursuit to the finish line. He unbelievably sped towards the front finish line in front of all the other skiers. Oh my goodness. He crossed the finish line and he pumped his arms towards the heavens. The crowd went wild. And when he went to that stand to receive an Olympic gold medal, it was no longer an award platform. Oh no, it had been transformed into a blazing tribute to a comeback story. The last became first, the defeated became victorious, the phoenix rose from the ashes. Man, comeback stories? Well, those are where awesome happens. And that is why we love them so much. The defeated find their footing and they fight for victory. 
Well, human, human living is just messy business, isn't it? I mean, our words, our attitudes, our thoughts, our desires, our actions, our inactions, they are all just a heartbeat away from landing us in a messy situation where we are left in a heap. And sometimes it even means that people fall on top of us and we are all in a pile with broken ski poles wondering how in the world we got there and how in the world we're going to get out of that situation. Well, the, town, the Tony household has been in a lot of messes around our house lately because we brought someone new home to our family. After months and months of looking for a puppy, there's like puppy shortages during coronavirus. Everybody apparently wants a puppy during quarantine. But we finally found one to welcome into our family. Her name is Apricot, and she is a wiggling, delightful tan furball of love with apricot ears and a wagging tail. She has wiggled her way into our hearts, even though she makes a mess wherever she goes. Nothing is safe. No shoe will go unshoed. No sock will go unwrestled. And no toy left unattacked. We've been trying to potty train her, and let's just say it's a good thing that she is so cute. (laughs) Well, a puppy, a puppy can get away with a lot of messes. But it's harder when we know better, right? Or at least we should know better. When we make bad decisions that makes messes of our lives, we are left with a whole lot of embarrassment. We're left with guilt, with frustration. We're left with shame. We're even left questioning ourselves, questioning our decisions and our motives. And our messes can really impact our relationships, our families, our friendships. Our messes can also impact our businesses and our finances and our futures. Messes are awful. They stink and they are no fun to clean up. They're no fun to talk about and they are definitely no fun to remember. But here is the incredible news. They don't have to be the end of the story. What if your mess that you have made is just the beginning of your comeback story? What if your setback is setting you up for a comeback? You know, with Jesus, oh, with Jesus, all things are possible. Jesus is the author of the comeback story. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have the God of the universe cheering you on. He is ready to hand you a new ski pole from the sidelines when you have fallen down and you are crumpled in a heap, in a mess. He is ready to point you in the right direction, to cheer you on and tell you to go for it. But I know when we find ourselves in those low points, it is hard to imagine that that place could ever result in your turning point for it to be a comeback. I mean, those missteps are really embarrassing, right? I mean, regret stops us in our tracks. That embarrassment that we feel, well, it can paralyze us. And anger and frustration can just breed doubt and cynicism about our future. It really can cripple our spirits. I mean, shame, well, shame can talk us out of anything. So these are all really very prominent, very real emotions that we struggle with when we are in a mess. All those crazy things that we have said and done that we wish we could take back, but we can't, can we? 
I mean, have you ever been annoyed at yourself for the words that you chose to use? Or how about frustrated with yourself about what you chose to do? I mean, if you've ever been annoyed or frustrated with yourself, you are not alone and you are in good company. I mean, it can even get worse when you feel like someone else is to blame for your stumble. I mean, think about those two Russian competitors in the Olympics. I mean, they went down with Simon and they were totally innocent bystanders. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time and got caught up in the fall. Well, let's just be honest here. When we fall, when we fall, we don't react well, do we? I mean, does anybody? When we fall, it is usually completely unexpectedly and we have to make a choice whether we are going to stay down or whether we're going to get up. Let's be honest, sometimes it feels like it would be easier to stay down. Well, here's the thing. Every good comeback story begins with someone in a heap. Someone smack dab in the middle of a mess that they either created or they find that they have landed in. So today, we are going to peel back the pages of the Bible to reveal a life that had to deal with a whole lot of regret. Someone who said and did the wrong thing repeatedly. Someone who landed in a whole pile of regret with broken ski poles flying everywhere. His name was also Simon. His name was Simon Peter. He was one of the disciples of Jesus. And if you want to turn with me to Luke 22, you can follow along in the story. Because as Luke writes it, he invites us to really consider and jump into the mess that Peter had created. Because Simon Peter faced a setback. It was the last time that I had had dinner with Jesus Our whole group, our all 12 disciples, we gathered with Jesus in the upper room of a home. The air was was so heavy that night. We all knew that things were heated politically. You couldn't even walk around Jerusalem without feeling the electricity in the air. The political leaders were angry. The religious leaders were angry. The Jews were angry. The Gentiles were angry. I mean, everyone felt like they were angry. Now, the 12 of us had been with Jesus for three years. We knew him really well, and we knew each other pretty well. We were a well-oiled machine. We were a ministry team. We were unified, or so we thought. We all rallied around Jesus. I mean, we knew we would fight to him unto the death if we needed to do that. We loved him. We believed in him. And we would go everywhere with him. We were his disciples. But that night, that night was different. We, we could feel it. We could feel it in the air. Jesus wasn't preparing us for battle. Instead, he showed up for dinner and he put a towel around his waist and he began to wash our feet. That was something the servants would typically do. And we said, Jesus, what are you doing? But he insisted. And so we let him wash our dirty, stinky feet. And then he sat down and he had a meal with us and he took some bread and he handed it to us and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he held up the wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. This is going to be a new covenant. Honestly, we had no idea what he was talking about. I mean, Jesus was standing right there. What was he talking about? Broken bodies and blood being poured out. We didn't understand. But 
I'd kind of learned to expect this with Jesus because there was a lot of things that he said that I didn't understand. So I found it best to just nod hmm, and consider the point deeply and then pray like crazy that someday I would figure out what the heck he was talking about. Turns out I didn't have to wait that long. We were all stressed. I mean, we could feel the tension in the air and we knew what Jesus was telling us was a big deal. But since we didn't know really what to do, we kind of defaulted into what we usually did. And that was argue. We started a whole argument about who is going to be the greatest. Well, Jesus shut us down. And as he was kind of closing down this argument, he looked right at me and he said, Simon, Simon, Satan asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus said that to me and I thought, what? He's praying for my faith? Why, why would he do that? I, I already told Jesus, I, I would go with him anywhere. I would follow him to the ends of the earth. But Jesus continued and he answered Peter and he said, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Oh, man, I just looked at him in hurt shaking my head in belief. There was no way that I was going to deny Jesus. I respected him too much. I was in this. But then things got real. Things all went sideways and changed so quickly. All of a sudden, Judas decided to betray Jesus and the soldiers came for Jesus. And I drew my sword and I cut off a soldier's ear. Jesus picked it up and healed the man, put it right back on him and told me to put away my sword. Man, things spiraled so fast. They arrested Jesus and they took him to the house of the high priest. And all the disciples, everybody scattered. Everybody ran. I think they were scared too. They didn't want to get caught. They didn't know what was going to happen. Well, I didn't know what to do either, but I kind of hid behind the trees and I, I followed Jesus. Now Luke continues to report to us what happened with Peter. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight and she looked closely at him. This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. Denial one. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. Denial two. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Denial three. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Oh man, confirmation with that rooster crowing. Conviction. I mean, that sound must have cut through him with a knife. And at that moment, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Can you imagine that look? I mean, what was it? Do you think it was more of a, I told you so look from Jesus? Or was it a, oh, I'm so disappointed in you look that Jesus gave him? Either one of them would have been brutal. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows. Today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. 
oh man, Peter cried. He wept tears of remorse. He wept tears of embarrassment, tears of guilt, tears of shame. He had denied knowing Jesus. Jesus knew it. He knew it. And now thousands of years later, we all know it. Peter denied Jesus. Peter lied three times. He lied to save his own skin. He was disloyal. He was face down in the snow with broken ski poles. And things just got worse from there. Jesus was put on trial. He was convicted. He was mocked. He was tortured. He was crucified. And he was buried. And the whole world went dark and everything felt hopeless. Peter, he didn't know what to do. His friends didn't know what to do. They were quiet. They were sullen. They were depressed. And three days later, three women, Joanna, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, they showed up where the disciples had gathered. Now the disciples kept gathering behind closed locked doors. They were scared that they too would be taken away and what would happen to them. So they remained in hiding. But as the women found them and came into the room, they rushed in talking nonstop about an empty tomb, about glowing angels and about a risen Lord. Well, the disciples weren't sure how to take this news. They were in shock. They were in disbelief. And they thought it was just complete wishful thinking. It was complete nonsense. Who could rise from the dead? Jesus was the only one who could rise people from the dead. And now Jesus was dead. Who would raise up Jesus? They all doubted, except Peter. Now Luke 24, 12 tells us this. Peter, however, got up. He didn't stay down. He slowly uncrumpled himself from the heap. He stood up and he dusted himself off. He got up and he ran to the tomb. Oh, bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, this is such an interesting part of the story because Peter did slow down here, which he didn't do often. He needed some time to think. Now, I think Peter wasn't sure what was going on. And, you know, Peter wanted to believe, but he was still dealing with his own pain of screwing up. It had only been three days ago that he had made a huge mistake repeatedly. He probably didn't trust his own judgment. Back down into the heap, he fell. But Jesus... Oh, Jesus being like that coach from the sidelines, he appeared to Peter to help. There's two different places in scripture, Luke 24, 34, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 5. And both report that Jesus appeared privately to Peter before Jesus went on to appear to the other disciples and the 500 other people that Jesus appeared to during the resurrection. The living Jesus. Oh, well, Jesus appeared to Peter specifically two times to help keep his faith alive, just as Jesus had prayed for him. And so that Peter would know, he would know deep in his bones that Jesus was alive. 
Now, we don't have an account of what Jesus said to Peter in those private meetings. It's such a bummer. I wish we did. But we do know that Jesus was intentional about giving Peter some time, some intentional time, some focused time to rebuild the relationship that had been broken, that had been mm, stretched and, and, and bruised with those denials. Peter was given multiple visits, multiple times to begin the healing process with Jesus. Now, John, another disciple, he lets us in on one of these amazing moments for Peter in John chapter 21. Jesus kept showing up in places after he rose from the dead. Not just for a few days after the resurrection, but for weeks he would show up. Now, As I said, the disciples were staying mostly behind closed, locked doors, afraid of what the Jewish leaders would do to the leadership team of Jesus. And Jesus twice appeared behind those closed doors to the disciples. Now, a few weeks later, John tells us that the disciples had finally been able to get out of Jerusalem. They got out of Jerusalem, the big city, and they headed to the Sea of Galilee, beautiful, peaceful surrounding for a change of scenery. And seven of the disciples decided to go fishing that night. Now for Peter, this was a return to what he knew. He had been a fisherman most of his life before before he met Jesus. Actually, that is how he met Jesus. Three years ago, Jesus came up to Peter after a night of being out on the water and not catching any fish and asked Jesus to take him out to the deep water. Peter agreed, thinking Jesus was crazy. There was no fish in the water. But once they got out into the water and Peter took this wandering rabbi that he barely knew out into the deep water, he watched with amazement as Jesus would do something that spoke deeply to his fisherman's heart. He brought the fish. He brought so many fish after a night of no fish into the nets that the nets were ripping. His boat piled so high with the fish, his boat began to sink. And Peter had been so taken with Jesus that day that he dragged his boat to shore and he walked away from it. He left the biggest catch of his life in the free for the taking in the the sun of the Galilean region. Oh, that was three years ago. Three years ago, he had left his boat behind. But after Jesus had been killed, Peter, he was ready to return to the water. He returned to what he knew and what he loved, fishing. He went out all night and his friends was with him. And again, it was a bad night, no fish. But Jesus, Jesus showed up and he was ready to turn things around. You see, Jesus was ready to turn the setback into a comeback. It was early in the morning and Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples, they didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to those seven fishermen out on the boats, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Oh, spoken like a coach from the sideline who's ready to hand a fresh ski pole to you after yours has broken. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. 
Okay, what's with that? Seven burly dudes. They couldn't haul in the fish because it weighed so much. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and he jumped into the water. Now there's the Peter that we know, right? Ready to jump out on the water. Maybe he thought he was going to walk on the water one more time with Jesus. Well, whatever he thought, he knew. Three years ago, he was willing to leave that fish behind, his boat behind, and he was ready to do it again when he saw Jesus. He would leave it all for Jesus. And so he began to start swimming, kind of half running, half swimming, half running as fast as he could to Jesus. Now the other disciples, they followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. Yes, someone stopped and counted. There were so many fish, they had to know how many. 153 fish. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of these disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Oh my goodness. It was so many fish that they had. And Jesus was so ready to be with the disciples to greet them. Now, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then a third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt this time because Jesus asked him three times for a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Oh, don't you just love how Jesus was able to bring Peter's story kind of full circle from starting his story out three years ago on the water and speaking the love language of fish to bringing it back to this last encounter, again, meeting him at the water and again, speaking his love language of fish. Peter had two times in his life where Jesus met him in empty, dark, void waters that were cold and had nothing happening. And Jesus showed up and provided abundance, more fish than the nets could hold, more fish than the boats could hold. Once when he first met Jesus and then perhaps again on this last day that he saw Jesus before Jesus ascended back up to heaven. That day, Jesus met Peter on the beach. And just as Peter had denied Jesus three times weeks earlier, Jesus gave him the chance to reaffirm his love for Jesus three times. Three denials. Three days of uncertainty while Jesus was in the tomb. Three questions from a live, living, fish-eating Savior and three affirmations 
of love. It was after Jesus had given him a little bit of time to heal in the weeks to deal with those moments of regret. And Jesus came back to him. He saved it for the time that Peter was ready to heal. Oh, can you just see Jesus helping Peter unpile himself out of the mess that he was in? Jesus handed him a fresh ski pole. He pointed him in the right direction and he said, go Peter, go build my church. Go make disciples. Go tell people about my love. Go tell people that you are still following me even after you landed in a heap. Go tell people that you were ready to get up and feed my sheep. Matthew 16, 8, Jesus says to Peter, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades itself will not overcome it. Because the gates of hell, they are going to try my friends. They are going to try and stop you with shame. They are going to try and stop you with guilt. They are going to try and stop you with embarrassment and with anger and with sickness and with frustration and with arguments. The gates of hell are going to try. But Jesus says, my church will stand. My bride shall stand. All the powers of hell itself will not stop the church. She is to continue to bring truth and hope and healing and guidance and direction and justice and unify my people in the midst of all their differences, no matter what they look like or no matter how they vote, followers of Jesus are to be unified in the spirit of the grace of Jesus Christ. Man, Peter, he had a great comeback from a big fall. The harder they fall, the bigger the comeback. So let's pivot right here and talk about your comeback. Maybe you've had a great comeback or maybe you need one. I mean, we've all been there. I mean, maybe it's not in front of millions of people at the Olympics, but we've all slipped up. We've all taken a fall. We've all experienced a setback. We each face a unique set of pressures and challenges and sometimes feels like a catastrophe, doesn't it? So how do we get the kind of resilience needed to stay the course and get back up when we have fallen in a crumpled heap? How do we dust ourselves off and and keep going? What do we do when we have lost our footing and lost our way? How do we turn a setback into a comeback. Well, one of our core values here at Purpose Church is that growing people change. We grow through adversity. Now, Marilyn Voss Savant says, being defeated is often a temporary condition, but giving up, well, giving up, that's what makes it permanent. So if you don't want your adversity to beat you, if you want to beat your adversity and rise to fight another day, well, here is what you need to do to turn your setback into a comeback. The first thing that we need is a new point of view. I mean, a bad attitude, it's kind of like a flat tire, right? You're not going to get anywhere until you change it. Well, We've got to be really careful about letting negative thoughts take the lead as we are trying to heal from a setback. I mean, negative thoughts, these things that 
kind of bring into our life failure and guilt and shame. I mean, they can become the biggest competitor in your life. Guilt and shame are what make us want to cast blame on someone else and say that it's his fault or that it's her fault. He made me do it. She made me do it. And blaming others might take the immediate sting out of the embarrassment that we feel. But really, it just kind of feels good to make excuses, doesn't it? When we say, why me? I mean, we can hang out in a why me pity party for quite a long time. But ultimately, that just wastes time. It wastes time getting to your comeback. Blame can become a bigger stumbling block than the obstacle itself. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. One of the best ways to renew a bad attitude is to start to show some gratitude. What is there to be thankful for? What blessings do you have? What is there that still gives you hope? The second thing we need to do is Turn and learn. You see, the thing that caused your setback is the thing that we now need to learn. Sometimes this means that we have to turn back to the beginning and we just need to learn how to do things differently. We might need to learn from different people. We need to have a healthier mindset. We need to approach it differently. We need to do it differently. We need to maybe get a different coach. Proverbs 1.5 says, Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. Who are you taking guidance from? And then the third thing is you need full on focus. Avoid distractions that could derail you. Get rid of them. You know the things that distract you, right? What's getting in your way to getting into a healthier place? What good thing could God do? What would redemption look like for you if you were focusing on that? Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Jesus, he is a hope dealer. He always can offer you hope, a better tomorrow. Jesus has plans for you. You, you are not lost. He can point you in the right direction. You see, setbacks, they can be something that is as small as maybe getting a a migraine on a busy day, or they can be as impactful as having a big fall when you're competing at the Olympics. But setbacks, they are temporary. They do not define you. Jesus is who define you. Jesus is the one who gives you your identity as a son, as a daughter of the God Almighty. Now he... Jesus, your savior, your creator, your friend, he is not going to leave you out in the cold. Comebacks, well, they're going to take a bucket load of gumption and a bucket load of grace. And Jesus is ready to bring the grace. Comebacks are possible with Jesus. All things, all things are possible with Jesus. He's always waiting with a fresh ski pole to hand you and put you back in the right direction, heading towards the finish line. He's always ready to turn your setback into a comeback. With Jesus, oh, with Jesus, a setback is just a setup for a comeback. Let's watch some stories from our own Purpose Church family as we hear how Jesus has turned their setbacks 
into comebacks. <laughs> 